0: Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at ExploringMormonThought.com. Follow us on Facebook.com forward slash ExploringMormonThought. Welcome back to Exploring Mormon Thought. Today I have a special guest on. He's been on before, actually, back in, I think it was episode number 69. And... He talked about his book then, God Can't. It's Thomas J. Urd. It's great to be chatting with you again. All right. So you have a new book that came out this month earlier, and it's kind of the next step for the audience of God Can't, or just anyone that's read any of your recent books. And it's actually called God Can't Q&A for question and answer. And first off, why don't you remind us a little bit about who you are? audience, you should go listen to episode 69 first, because we went over a lot of the grounding for this episode in that, and rather than repeat a lot of that, I'm going to just assume that you've listened to that episode, and we'll do a little bit of repeating here, but just for your own sake, please listen to that one first, and then come back to this one. First off, what made you want to write this particular book? Because I I understand God Can't was a hit, and It, you know, probably, I would guess, prompted a lot of question and answer. So were you just tired of answering the same questions over and over, or what made it arise? (laughs) Yeah, there are really three reasons why I wrote this book. One, that,
1: you know, yes, people were asking me questions. If God's love is uncontrolling, if God can't single-handedly control anyone or anything, then what can God do? And you know, what are the implications for that in terms of prayer, miracles, how God acts, love, all the kinds of questions that people who believe in God, you know, typically want to ask. So that was one thing, sort of the the implications of that. Secondly, I believed that there were other, and still believe, there are other big, vexing, difficult questions that people who believe in God ask that the traditional ways of thinking about God stumble on. You know, one of them is, why doesn't God answer our prayers all the time the way we want them? Another one is, you know, I've prayed a ton of time for a miracle and they've not happened. What's going on there? And so the traditional way of thinking about God's power has brought up other questions and this uncontrolling love perspective that God can't view, I think provides really good solutions, really good answers to those vexing questions. And then third, I wanted to kind of pull back the curtain a little bit and expose readers to some of the theological, even philosophical frameworks that undergird some of the ideas in God can't, some of the metaphysics. And um, I wanted to kind of lead people that direction in a non-technical, very accessible way to let them understand what the framework is that I assume philosophically.
0: All right, great. And that's, yeah, that's kind of the feeling I got from it. Because, you know, I started with The Uncontrolling Love of God, which, you know, I'm not like uh, educated in philosophy technically or anything like that. But I thought that was actually a very accessible book in general. But I I understand that a lot of people are like, well, I mean, that's nice and all, but it's way too technical still, because I guess if you don't have, you know, the basic understandings of like the history of thought and philosophy and stuff, it was still like, okay, well, I didn't even know that I could think about these. And so, God Can't was really at that super accessible level, like I think we talked about last time, you you know, you could give it to your grandma and she could understand it. At least that was the right. goal. And And like I said, I... I think you accomplish that, and so this feels like if God Kent was dipping your toe in the world of theology and philosophy a little more than the average believer does, then I think this next book of the question and answer feels like you now you're kind of wading in, maybe maybe almost to your knees a little bit. So it's still very accessible, but you got to dip in a little more. Yeah, that's a really nice way
1: to put it. I, I sometimes think of like four tiers of book in terms of a difficulty. And if God can't is on tier one, the most accessible, questions and answers for God can't, the second book is like tier two. Uncontrolling love of God is tier three, and then something more sophisticated what you think of as a hard academic book is tier four. I don't think the uncontrolling love of God was that technical for most people, but it was for some.
0: Yeah, I know, that makes sense. So right off the bat then And I said we wouldn't do this too much, but just obviously some people are going to listen to this that might be lazy and they won't go listen to the other episode. And you start the questions and answers for God Can't out like this, We just kind of do a recap, if you will, of the, the main premises or the basic idea of your God Can't idea or the uncontrolling love of God as I came to know it personally.
1: Yeah, those, that, the phrase, the uncontrolling love of God and God can't view, I use those interchangeably in this new book because really they're just two ways of saying the same thing. But the basic idea is that we should understand God primarily through love, or at least we should let love shape the way we understand God's various attributes, including God's power, but also God's knowledge, God's relation to time, etc., But the big point is that if we begin with love, and we think love is inherently uncontrolling, then we should make some real claims about how God acts in the world. And the big one is that God always influences everyone, everything, from the most complex to the least complex. God's always present, always active, but never controlling. And not just voluntarily choosing not to control, actually can't control. It goes against God's very nature to control anyone or anything. So we're not just talking free will creatures, we're talking worms, we're talking cells, we're talking quarks. From the most complex to the simplest entities of reality, God is present, active, creating, but never controlling. And that, in the God Can't book, I use to talk about How it helps us solve the problem of evil. That is, it isn't that God is abandoning those who are suffering. It isn't God causing it. It's not even that God is allowing it as if God could stop it and chooses not to. But God simply can't control anyone or anything because God loves everyone and everything. That's kind of the main point of God can't, but there are four others, and I'll just quickly say the other four. The second is that God is a affected by what happens in the world, that God suffers with us. The third is that God is working to heal, but can't heal single-handedly. The fourth is that God works to squeeze whatever good can be squeezed out of the bad God didn't want in the first place. And the last one is that God actually needs the world, our creatures' cooperation for love to win. It isn't as if God is, you know, going to win without anything we do. We actually play an essential role In love winning.
0: Thanks for the overview. And like I said, please listen to the previous episode, and we went pretty in depth on that. Or just go in your podcast thing and type in Thomas J. Ord or just Ord in general, and you'll get a lot of podcasts because you do a lot of podcasts.
1: (laughs) I also have a strange last name. It's O O R D. And so there's not many uh, other Ords that are going to pop up.
0: Which is great for searching. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I guess to start off, I debated whether to put this question here or kind of roll it into one of the others, but I'll just ask kind of up front. So your view, at least the way that a lot of people are viewing it, the way you position it, I guess, is somewhere between open theism, which says that the future is open, God doesn't know the future, and he is in time and relational, but most open theists would say that God is still self-limiting, and he does have some form of ultimate power. I think some open theists would still maybe limit God in some way, but not as much as you would. And then between that and what's known as process theism or process thought, where it's fairly similar to your idea, at least the Christian version of process thought is, but it also it goes a little further. Well, I don't know if it goes further, but I guess that's kind of my question. So my understanding, and I know process thought doesn't really have a central core of like what the beliefs in process thought are, but at least in the Christian strand of it, it seems to be that reality is not exactly as, you know, it was understood previously. In other words, like, things aren't static, and therefore God doesn't just have this kind of power to unilaterally do things. But the reason that God doesn't have that kind of power, and the reason he also is, and this is where the similarity with your view is, the reason he can't control on that view is that the nature of reality itself is, I guess it is God's nature too, but the nature of God and the nature of reality, both in tandem, make it so that God can't control. So, though I've poorly described that, can you differentiate your view from what the general Christian process view is?
1: Yeah, one of the problems with process theology is that there are many, many different versions, and there's no consensus on what's essential. A couple of my mentors, one guy named John Cobb and another David Griffin, David Griffin wrote a book in where he lays out, I think, 10 core doctrines of process theology. John Cobb has zero core doctrines of process theology. So like, you know, what is process theology? It's really hard to nail that down. And in my conversations with Christians, I discovered very quickly in my life that most Christians didn't understand it. And those who thought they did had very different views. And before long, I realized that If I was going to kind of communicate and say the things I really wanted to say, I probably needed to have my own category. I needed to come up with my own language. And my language ends up kind of being, like you said, between process theology and open theology, although, you know, some process people claim me as one of their own, open folks typically claim me as one of their own, and and I call myself an open relational theologian, which encompasses, I think, both camps. But one way to think about my view as kind of a halfway house between process theology and openness is to talk about the way God's power is shaped or limited. I think most self-described evangelical open theists have what I call a voluntary divine self-limitation view. That is, God's choosing not to be in control. God could and maybe occasionally does to do a miracle here, resurrect Jesus, you know, do something spectacular, maybe at the creation of the world or at the eschaton, but God generally is not going to control anyone or anything. And this is just a choice on God's part, moment by moment. On the other side of me, at least some process theologians and philosophers sound as if. It's some sort of external constraint upon God that limits God's capacity. They might talk about it in terms of metaphysical laws or the God world relationship, or Whitehead talks about God being caught in the clutches of creativity. And at least to most people, it sounds as if there are these external factors to God that limit God and what God can do. My proposal is that it's God's very nature that limits what God can do. And this nature is first and foremost love. To put it technically, uncontrolling love is logically primary in God's nature. That means that it isn't something outside of God constraining God, nor is it some voluntary choice, but God's inability to control others derives from God's own nature of love.
0: All right, good. And yeah, I guess that's, I mean, you touched on that a bit in the opening, but that's kind of the crux of the whole idea. The premise is actually fairly simple to understand, but then how it plays out is where it gets more complex. Right. So you're just saying traditionally in Christianity, love is a primary or something very important to believers in God or Christ. I think I remember in the movie, The Life of Pi, if you ever saw that. He explores many religions, and he says, like, the, you know, the main thing I liked about Christianity was that their God was loving, and I felt loved. And so it's important to Christians, but I guess you're taking it one step further and saying, well, if we take that seriously and say that God's primary attribute or the thing that is his essential essence, I guess, if you will, is love, then how does that play out? And then, you know, I think, at least uh, in Uncontrolling Love, you, you reference, like, the verses on charity and how... Love itself does not seek her own and Yeah, I think like First Corinthians
1: chapter thirteen says, Love does not force its own way. That's a really nice summary of my view of God's uncontrolling love.
0: So what do you find superior in that view as opposed to in kind of a more general process view of just the nature of reality? Or that why not say, I guess, is my question, that God can't control because God's nature is not to be that kind of being that can control. At least when I've tried to explain this idea to people, they're like, okay, so you're saying God's essence is, or like he's essentially loving, but loving, at least the way that most people think about it, is a personality trait. And can a personality trait really be actually essential? Because like usually when you talk about someone's nature, Or in the, like, scientific world, when you're talking about the essence of the nature of, like, something, you're talking about physical characteristics. And you're saying, you know, like, the essence of, like, an animal, the way you describe it, helps you categorize it. So you're like, oh, it's a member of this species. Why do you prefer this view as opposed to saying, like, God is the type of being, if you could relate him to a genus or species, is the type of being that doesn't have controlling power. He has the most power, but the kind of power he has just happens to not be controlling. And that's his nature still, but it's not... A personality trait. Yeah, I've got no problem with that. I think that's what I'm saying. I don't think of love
1: as a personality trait. I think of love as a particular action motivated by a character, yes, or in, my, in God's sense, God's nature. But uh, I don't have a problem with the way you've described it. One of the advantages, however, to my view, of saying that it's love itself that motivates God, that is God's primary characteristic is that I think it really syncs well with the way a lot of Christians read Scripture. The Scripture writers often prioritize love. God is love. You know, the greatest of these is love. The Great Commandments, all these kinds. Even, you know, we we talk about the God of the Old Testament being unloving sometimes. But over and over, the psalmist says, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. There's lots of love in the Old Testament, too. So I think a lot of people are attracted to Christianity, as you said, because it's a religion primarily focused on love. And if I can link that with the idea that God is uncontrolling, I think it's a more persuasive vision.
0: Yeah, makes sense. And I have a lot of questions relating to that, and we'll get to them as we go. Good. This is the part I planned the least, and so I inevitably rambled a lot. So (laughs) hopefully I'll button it up a little more. But we might talk for a long time if you're okay with that. Okay. Okay, so the first section of the book, and hopefully this doesn't offend you, but I want to mention it, but I want to come back to it at the end because I feel, at least in my opinion, that the answer to this can't really make a lot of sense until we answer a lot of other questions. And that is, so if God can't control, why pray? And like I said, listener, have that in mind as we're going through this. But I think we can better answer that when we've gone through some of these other sections. I do that just because that is actually, it's a good starting point, and in the book it makes sense. But that's, at least in my experience, the ultimate question in the end of like, well, okay, so we've changed the view of God a little bit from maybe the traditional believer, and, and then now they need to understand, and then how do I now relate to this God personally? And prayer usually is how you do that. Very important. All right, so let's start with this first one. I'm, I'm guessing... I've listened to a lot of the podcasts you're on, just because it's always interesting to me. But I'd I guess this is the number one question and the first thing that people ask you when once you explain this view, and that's, well, if God is uncontrolling, then how do we explain all those miracles? <laughs> and I think they have in mind this in the background. Another way to say that question is like, well, the Bible seems to depict a God who can do either supernatural things or His will is realized, and maybe they don't think of the word unilaterally, because I know. That has like philosophical implications, but they're like, you know, Jesus is walking on water, he's multiplying fish, he's healing sick people, he's parting the Red Sea, throwing down manna in the Old Testament and making donkeys talk and all that. So that doesn't seem to jive with what you're saying here. Yeah, yeah, that is a very common question. And as you rightly note,
1: people have assumptions that they bring to anything. I have assumptions, everyone does. But one of the most common assumptions people have when it comes to God is that God has the capacity to single-handedly bring about some outcome. Whether it's miraculous or just mundane, if God wants it done, boom, God can do it all alone. Now, one of the things I say in the book is I can find no explicit evidence for this view in the Bible. There have been a lot of interpretations of things in the Bible, like God hardening Pharaoh's heart, The kind of miracles you mentioned, people have said, well, if God's doing that, it's obviously God's doing it all alone. I mean, maybe they're not saying that out loud, but that's the kind of assumptions they have. But the Bible doesn't explicitly, at least I can't find anything, say that that's the case. And we're talking from the beginning of creation to the eschaton and all these miracles. What if God's miraculous activity requires some kind of creaturely cooperation, be that human, animal, cellular, organs, even quantum, or if not cooperation at the smaller levels, if we don't think cells can cooperate or, you know, dirt cooperates, at least the conditions of creation being conducive. So the parting of the Red Sea, I don't think water has free will to cooperate with God or not, but... God can also see weather patterns, and the Red Sea is parted more than once in history because of heavy winds coming down the the slopes. So those kinds of things can be conducive to the miraculous things God wants to do. So I think all of the miracles we find in Scripture, and all the ones that I know that are legitimate today— can be explained by God acting and there being some kind of creaturely cooperation or the conditions, the inanimate conditions of creation being conducive. One additional advantage to this view, I think it's a huge advantage, is that it explains why there aren't a whole lot more miracles. <laughs> so, um, as I said earlier, uh, you know, I've prayed for God to do wild and woolly things to rescue Not just, uh, you know, give me a new car, but, you know, save my grandmother from her cancer. And they've not happened. And I've been to churches where we prayed time and time again for people to be healed, and a very small percentage are healed. Well, when that happens, you have to have some kind, at least I, being the person I am, I want some kind of explanation. And it sure helps me, and many I know, to say that God was trying to work but there either wasn't the cooperation at the cellular level or the community level, the individual level, or the inanimate elements of creation weren't aligned in some kind of way to make that miracle possible.
0: All right, so in the book, I like that, first off, you do talk about how when you say miracle, a lot of people have this idea of like stopping the processes of the natural universe and interceding in some way. And so you actually you say, no, I, that's not how... I would define that, and so you actually do give a definition. You put, miracles, according to what you're going for, is miracles are unusual and good events that involve God's causal action in relation to creation. But, um, let me read this too, just so, in my mind I was like, okay, well what does that mean? But then in the next paragraph you explain, you said, well in each moment, God responds to each creature and situation by providing new possibilities for action. And so any listeners that are familiar with process thought will recognize that kind of language of providing possibilities. And so I think you already said this, but God does this for complex creatures, simple creatures, and even the smallest entities of existence, and each new set of possibilities is relevant for each being in each situation. So I, sorry, I'm going to read one more thing. So I was like, what do you mean by providing new possibilities? But again, you answered it in the next section, so... He said, Good. You're like, Yeah, so this questions and answers was literally going on in my head. (laughs) And you were answering them. He said, God calls, commands, persuades, or inspires creatures of all complexities to choose the best among the possible. So I guess my question is if I'm understanding you right, you're saying that miracles are things that can occur naturally, but when they do occur, it seems miraculous to us because it's unusual, but it's not something that is outside of what could possibly happen already within like the laws of physics and such.
1: Exactly. That's exactly what I'm saying. Now, of course, there's all kinds of interesting questions like, you know, what is outside the laws of physics? we don't really know that, but we've got some ideas of what's possible and not. And, you know, we, we make plausible assumptions or what is possible biologically. There's all kinds of science questions that I'm really interested in and have written on another context. But yeah, you're right. I'm not saying a miracle is when God does the impossible. Nope. God does the impossible in relation to creation, creaturely cooperation. It's possible, but it's unexpected, unusual. Uh, we didn't see that coming kind of a thing.
0: So this kind of leads into this next part anyway, but I'll just ask it here. So let's say there's some sort of scenario and there's you know i i guess my cousin a long time ago was in a rollover accident and it seemed miraculous that because of the impact of the rollover that the roof didn't collapse cuz it should have and so though that seems like something miraculous to us it's obviously possible that the laws of physics would be such that that wouldn't crush that way anyway but i mean if there is any what part did god play in that was he like Willing the metal to not crush, or was that just the laws of physics? And God was like, Well, whatever happens is, or whatever's going to happen is going to happen. Like, how does God act in those kind of situations, in your view?
1: That's a great question. So, when I try to work out the details of any particular purported miracle, I try to ask the question What are the creaturely agents, actors, factors, and objects in that situation? In situations in which there's organisms, animate objects, so like a healing, cells, or um, you know something like that, it's easy for me then to talk about responsiveness on the creaturely part to make this thing happen. The cells were healed because there's some kind of cooperation or the conditions were such that they coalesced in a particular way. And then I, I don't say it's entirely... Creaturely or entirely God, but there was this work in tandem. When we get to cars and metal objects, inanimate objects, then I don't rely on this whole response to God thing, because I don't think metal responds to God. There's no intentionality and in responsive, no agency in metal. So that's when I start going toward my language of factors being conducive to the miracle, so it isn't as if God somehow suspended the laws of physics or the laws of whatever you know makes possible metal to do something. In these kinds of cases, I'm going to say those conditions were conducive for the miracle. God was present and active, but not in a kind of way that involved creatures responding. Likely what I'm going to do in those kind of settings is saying, you know, we don't know all the factors that went into the rollover. You know, we weren't there for one thing and uh, we don't understand metal perfectly either. And what I oftentimes point out in these kinds of car accident stories is that it's so frequently that people say there was a miracle they should have been crushed because other cars are that. And I start to think, man, there's a lot of miracles that there are too many. Maybe we don't really know (laughs) how cars get crushed. Because too many people ha- should have been killed, but somehow the uh, the car wasn't crushed. So anyway, those are the kind of directions I want to go. But uh, um, maybe to summarize just by saying, when I try to work out the minutiae on these, distinguishing between animate and inanimate objects is important for me.
0: Well, I'm good, because that, that leads right into my next question here. So Good. As I was reading the book, and I I got to that part of inanimate objects and aggregates, and you say that, you know, obviously those don't have free will because they don't have mind. They're more like what you'd call the the regularities that happen to arise from, you know, the elements that come together or something like that. But I was like, well, the thing is, the universe itself seems to be comprised of like 99.999999 ad infinitum. You know, other than the small infinitesimal planet that we can tell that has life in it, it, seems to be composed of inanimate objects. And so and I know we'll touch on God and the universe later, but if that's the case, does the uncontrolling God really have that much say in how the universe is turning out at all, or can it even be influenced in that way, or is it just gonna the laws of physics set at the beginning of the universe are immutable almost if they can't be influenced? Yeah, so I address this
1: some in The Uncontrolling Love of God, in terms of the laws of nature and the laws of physics. And my view is that the least complex entities follow law-like regularities. I don't like the phrase laws of nature. I like lots of law-like regularity language, because there's a number of problems philosophically with the idea of laws of nature. So I think God is active among the simplest, working in whatever way is possible, but the range of responsiveness for the smallest entities is pretty small and what makes an object an inanimate object is the way those entities are formed or comprised and here i really do draw a lot on process philosophy and a distinction between what we call aggregate societies and organismic societies aggregate societies uh, uh, an example of that would be a rock An organismic society would be a worm. Uh, Worms have some kind of central agency or some kind of central member that allows them to have some kind of directedness as a whole. Whereas rocks, there's no central agent. There's no mind. There's no center member that makes the rock act as a whole. However, I think all the smallest entities that make up that rock have a tiny, tiny measure of responsiveness to God. But they're not organized in such a way that they respond as a whole. So all that philosophy to say that it is the case that I think God is more powerful the more complex creatures cooperate with God. God's work at the Big Bang and in universes that have no life, at least simple cell life that we know of, God's just simply not as powerful, because even though God's active in all those places, the range of things that God wants to see done is very small, given the possibilities.
0: Yeah, so that's how I'd go about beginning to answer that. I understand that some of these would almost require a whole book to answer sometimes. Yes. All right, so this next one we sort of touched on earlier, but I guess it's more of a clarification. So I was wondering, well, one's kind of a statement, and then there's a question. So I was wondering your view on Scripture, because I think, at least from my reading, it's obvious that you're not like a, a fundamentalist, literalist to the extreme where you think that every single word in the Bible is the direct word of God with no errors or anything like that. So when you're using examples from the Bible. And you said that, you know, there's no explicit language that says God metaphysically single-handedly controlled that. But do you really think that the authors of the Bible didn't have a view of a God that could control? Or I guess what you're saying, at least from my view, is that the Bible doesn't preclude that because it doesn't explicitly state. So believers in the Bible, though maybe obviously you can get the other reading out of it, it doesn't make it so you can't believe in what you're saying.
1: Yeah, I think that's a fair way to put it, that uh, I think there's good evidence for my view in the Bible, but there's also a lot of passages that don't go my way or explicitly against me. And so a fair interpretation could lead one either direction. So then the question becomes, okay, well, then which direction do you lean? And here I try to make a, a very common argument that says you should look at the big dominant themes of Scripture. And I think those themes revolve around love. So if you have this love hermeneutic, this love interpretive lens, and then you look at a passage that says God healed the person, well, then you ask the question okay, okay, God healed, I'm on board with that. Does that mean God did it all alone? Or can we say there was some sort of creaturely cooperation or factors? Well, let's ask the question, if we say God did it alone, what are the implications? Well, one of them is going to be a problem of evil implication. If God can heal this thing all alone, then why can't God rescue that? So then you're going to go, well, let's, let's work this out then. Maybe we need to have some kind of agent, creaturely agency. And so I have these broad themes that I think arise from Scripture that are really powerful for me. And those are the themes of love. I have lots of particular passages and stories that support my particular angle. And then there are some that don't explicitly support it, but they also don't explicitly reject it.
0: So the next part in the miracles section, or, you know, if God can't control, then how are there miracles? You have a section that is titled, Can God Try Harder? And that seems to arise from the view where people are like, oh, well, if you just did a little bit more, then we could have more miracles. So, well, I guess I will here. So kind of sum up where, why did you include that specific thing? Like what types of questions led you to want to answer that? There were people who were asking that specific one. And so they they had in mind
1: that God is persuasive rather than coercive. And what that in their mind meant is that God isn't really trying 100%. God is working at, you know, maybe 85%, 64%, sometimes 23 to let us have a lot more, say. And God can't go 100 because in their mind that would be controlling. But God functions at, you know, some percentage less than 100 Well, if you go that route, then you say, well, maybe if God would have gone a couple of percentages higher, then the good would have emerged and God wouldn't have been controlling because that wouldn't be 100%. So that's the kind of logic people are using. And my answer to that question is God always works 100% all times, all places. God's always doing the best he can, to use that language. But God's 100% is never controlling. It's always persuasive. It's always loving. So um, God is never can't try harder because God's always trying the hardest. God can can
0: try. It doesn't sound like good English there, but <laughs> you, you get get what I'm saying. <laughs> okay, good. That that reminds me because I, I when I was researching for this, I I found on the Goodreads website someone left a review of God can't, and the guy was basically like, well, I mean, I guess if you know you have a, a God and He can't, and He obviously misunderstood some of what you're saying, so. You don't have to address this first part, but it says, if if God cannot influence, speak, nudge humans in some way, then yes, the theodicy problem is solved. But this would make God's love superfluous, and it would be even harder to somehow line this God up with the God of the Hebrew Bible. So ignore that first part. This is kind of the most important part. Okay. He says, in the Hebrew Bible, in which the fundamental assumption throughout is that God can communicate. So he says, my problem is this, if God exists and can do anything, then with the tiny bit he can do, it seems conceivable that he could do more to lessen evil and therefore the problem that you set out, you or set out to solve still exists. And so I think what he was getting at there, at least from what I'm getting, and I I did bring this question to my mind too, is like, well, yeah, in the Bible, God does seem to be, at least the way the authors portray it, and that's... You can come back to your view on Scripture if maybe this is a little too literal of a reading. But they seem to be getting visions, dreams, perhaps sometimes the actual voice of God is purported to be heard or, you know, a voice in their head. And what's even more is, at least, I guess in both Old and New Testament, God is sending angels all the time. So if God can send angels, then couldn't God, you know, if he can do that, then it sure seems like he's not working at 100% or he has some secret motive like you try to avoid of being like oh i guess they need to learn something but if god can send angels for example then why can't he just send angels and be like hey and even if they can't interact physically like hey not only can mary you're gonna have a baby but you're about to get in a car accident i guess he would have to know the future for that so maybe not that but i guess you kind of get the gist of what i'm saying <laughs> yeah your husband's cheating on you or something <laughs> <There>
1: you <go>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah So, I do believe God is in the communication business, and I think God communicates all the time. However, just like in God's other ways of acting, this communication is never in a controlling kind of way. So, that means God simply can't provide an unambiguous, crystal clear revelation. Creatures have to cooperate in this, and that means there can always be the possibility to misunderstand not get the full picture, et cetera, which is another reason why I'm not a fundamentalist and an inerrantist. But when it comes to angels, who's to say that angels are controlled by God? I mean, if there's a significant part of the Christian tradition that thinks there are bad angels that are rebelling against God, it sounds almost like they've got some free agency as well. So it could be that God's wanting to send more angels, but the angel is saying, you know, I'm really tired. I, mean, I, I really want to watch the game this weekend or whatever. Another question, of course, is what are angels? And that's a big, big question. Sometimes scripture seems to sound like angels are just humans who are messengers. Other times they seem to be winged, Casper the Friendly Ghost kinds of things. So uh, that's a big question. Who gets to be an angel? What is an angel? But my bigger point would be, I think God is communicating and wants to be as clear as possible and is trying to be as clear as possible, but can't be totally unambiguously clear. And that's because, again, God can't control. We have to be open, but even when we're open to hearing from God, we can
0: misunderstand what God is saying to us. That's fine. I just wanted to get your view on what that guy was saying. Um, But I think as far as the audience that is going to be listening to this podcast, the LDS have a very strong, well, for the most part, I mean, there's the more orthodox that probably (laughs) aligns more with The fundamentalist Christian, unfortunately, but I think for a lot of people that read into theology, they realize that, at least for a lot of the way that we interpret scripture too, is it requires that God is co-participating with a human in this process. And so everything, as far as like revelation is concerned, has to be filtered through a human mind, through human understanding. And so you're going to have lapses in communication, misunderstandings, things that you can't even understand. Because like, if you try to imagine God trying to explain like, the creation of the world to Moses or something it's like, okay, all right, well, obviously, you know, you have a completely different worldview. And so I'm going to give you some intuition, then you can kind of interpret that how you will. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot I like about the LDS.
1: Well, the LDS sounds like there's one view of Revelation, but I, I know that there's varieties within the uh, LDS tradition, in part because I grew up primarily with lots of LDS friends, but in the last 10 or 15 years, I've spent more time with LDS scholars and done some reading. But one of the things I've liked, even since a kid with the LDS tradition, is the idea of continuing revelation. That always just made good sense to me. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, I think everything that's in the Book of Mormon or any of these other documents is um, 100% what God wanted there, just like I don't think it's in the Bible that way. So, But I I just like the general notion that God's still in the Revelation business. We can learn new insights. I mean, that just seems like that's the right way to go. Discerning the particulars, you know, that's a different story. But the general view, I'm on board with. Well,
0: great. So the next section or part of the miracles, you kind of explain your view on how you would talk about I guess it kind of touches on the mind-body problem, but also just how you view the essence of reality. And you call it material mental monism, and I know you break it down further into kind of your view. So that is a view on like the nature of reality, I guess. So can you explain what material mental monism is and why it's important to your view?
1: Yeah, here, some of your listeners who know a little bit about process philosophy will see that I'm drawing from that or at least one aspect of that particular tradition. There's been a long-standing question about what the nature of being is, or what philosophers call ontology. What does it mean to be? And the language that many philosophers have used is a substance. And substances have been described in a lot of ways, but typically substances are thought to be either Material, like a physical objects, think of dirt, or mental, think of minds and ideas. And so some today who are thoroughgoing materialists think that all of reality is physical or material. And that means that even though you think you have a mind and you have ideas, that really those are reducible to materiality. That's not going to be a view that Mormons like very well. I don't like it either. Another idea is that ultimately everything is minds and ideas. This is sometimes called idealism. Now there's lots of different versions of this, but there's been some really important philosophers in history, including Christian philosophers who've liked this idea, who said that God is the universal mind, and you and I have minds, and we're like God like that, and we have ideas, and minds can make decisions and be personal and all that kind of stuff. But dirt isn't mental, or have any mind-like qualities. The problem with these two approaches oftentimes arises when we think about our minds and our bodies. Does our arm have any mental characteristics? Does it have a mind? And if it doesn't, if it's purely material, how in the world are our minds going to interact with it? Because it's obvious Right now, I've got my arms behind my head. I'm leaning back. I'm making a decision to relax while I'm talking. My mind is sometimes doing that consciously, but often unconsciously. And my body just responds really well. Now, how is that going to be possible if my mind is purely mental and my body is purely physical or material? This is called mind-body dualism. or It's a position a lot of Christians like because it retains the mind capacity, even freedom, but it also doesn't say dirt is mental. <laughs> it has a mind. There is a fourth option, and this time sometimes goes under the label panpsychism. I don't like that label very well, or pan-experientialism. The label I like, as you mentioned, is material mental monism. And what it says is that the Even the smallest entities, the smallest being, the smallest stuff of a reality has both a physical or material and a mental aspect. And that means then that we can solve these big questions about how our minds can interact with our bodies. We can solve all kinds of questions evolutionarily, like how did complex creatures like us with consciousness emerge out of that which allegedly had no mentality. Well, my theory says, well, there was mentality even at the start, just very small. And this also helps understand questions about miracles, which is why I put it in this chapter. We can understand why um, sometimes our bodies cooperate with us and sometimes they don't. Sometimes we say our bodies have a mind of their own. I wanted to introduce readers in this chapter to that ontological option in the conversation
0: amongst philosophers. All right, so one last question in the miracle section. And again, I know this is like a particular instance, but it's just to demonstrate the overall view. So with material mental monism in mind, if miracles, or the way you define them, for example, healing, which is what you talk about the most, I think, in God Can't, can you give an example of what isn't happening or what God is trying to get happen that's not happening? Like. Because, like, I understand humans resisting God's pull or something like that because they can understand and they're like, I have a clear decision between two options and I'm choosing one or the other. But when something on, like, the cellular level isn't cooperating with God, what does that mean in your view? and What's that look like?
1: Yeah. I'm trying to think of a good analogy. Sometimes when we're sick, we have a virus, we say and we start putting a certain kind of antibody, some penicillin or something in there to try to change what's going on, to make the virus go away or change the way our cells react to the virus, we'll say something like this, oh, our cells are now resistant to this antibody, or the virus now resists the antibody. We use language that makes it sound, and I say we, I'm talking physicians that our body has a way of responding to its environment, to drugs, to things we put in it. Our body is a living organism that responds to its environment. Now, if you're someone, actually most Christians are going to believe this, that God is omnipresent, present to absolutely everything, including all of our body, then God is an actor, an agent in the environment in which our bodies respond. So if that's the case, then even though we may have a hard time sort of spelling this out, looking under a microscope to seeing how cells respond to God, we have a framework to think about, even at the cellular level, some kind of responsiveness to its environment in which God is a part. And I think God calling, leading, luring, whatever, however God influencing toward healing, that even at the cellular level, there can be some measure of responsiveness. Now, I don't think cells have consciousness like you and I do. So it's not like the cells saying, hmm, should I cooperate with God this time or not? No, I think there's some kind of intentionality and agency, but not conscious. But having some mentality, even at the cellular level, even though it's not the same as consciousness, is what's required for the kind of, well, I keep coming back to this word, responsiveness to its environment. And so that's the kind of theory that I'm laying out here. I readily admit you can't put God under a microscope, but using this kind of language that we already use about our bodies, it's very common in the medical field, and then saying God is an actor and factor provides the frame and how cells can cooperate or not with God.
0: That's a good analogy, because, yeah, you're right, they— In the medical field, you're like, oh, someone's unresponsive, meaning we're trying to do something that their body can do, but it's just not responding. Like sometimes the defibrillator works, sometimes it doesn't. (laughs) Yes.
1: You know, even we talk about humans with free will, our free will is in a particular range. You know, right now I'm having this conversation with you. I don't have the free will to play center field for the Mariners tonight, the Seattle Mariners, because I'm just not there. There's all kinds of things I can't do, because the range of my freedom is fairly narrow compared to all the possibilities that could be done in the entire universe. But my range is much wider than what my dog can do. And my dog's range of freedom is much wider than what a worm can do. And I think a worm has more agency than a cell. So when you get down to the smaller levels, the kind of responsiveness is going to be fairly limited, but there's still some responsiveness and we even talk that way in the field of medicine.
0: All right, great. And well, that's an excellent answer, too. I knew it's, it's kind of hard to pinpoint exactly that. All right, so the next section is called, What does an uncontrolling God do? And so I guess, you know, like you said, that arises when you're like, God can't. It's like, okay... Well, he can't do all this stuff. We just had a whole book on that. But what can he do? And you did address that plenty in God can't as well. But in this, we just kind of talk about what is God doing all day, every day? I guess to start off this particular section, I have this question here. Like, So in your view, you state that God is an omnipresent universal spirit. I think I know the answer to this, but does God, in your view, have a mind and a personality? Or is he more like a force of nature?
1: Good question. More like the first. I think God is a mind or is a person, even though I actually think God has a physical and mental aspect, just like all entities of existence do. But to use kind of traditional language, I think God is personal. The language I like to use is relational. But that includes God having intentions and making decisions, having emotions. So much more like
0: personal than like the force in Star Wars. Yeah, I've heard you say that, but I, I wanted you to just kind of explain that. So next, you say, although we as humans can't, and probably all of reality, we can't perceive God with our five senses per se, but you do say we can directly perceive God through our minds and bodies. And I wonder, in the LDS view, we have these sayings like where you feel like a burning in your bosom or you'll just have like a an enlightened thought or, you know, something like that is is that how you kind of view god communicating with humans too or how do we perceive this spirit cuz i guess you i mean you already touched on the mind body problem but i guess what i'm getting at here is if god is a spirit is he part of the material mental monism like that applies to god too right so he has yeah, some right. physical aspect that's right the physical aspect is not going to be seen tasted touched heard
1: etc by our five senses but just like i think minds We can't see, taste, touch, you know, sniff those. And there's lots of other things we think have an element of material existence that we can't perceive with our five senses. I think God is the same. By the way, you know, the burning in the bosom and enlighten it. I mean, that's not just LDS. There's lots of other Christians who use that language. Although I think burning in the bosom is probably more common among LDS. Anyway,
0: I have no problem with that language. Okay, and yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to imply that other religions don't mean that. I'm just saying that's the common parlance in, in LDS thought. Yeah, yeah. As the crux of kind of like, what does an uncontrolling love of God do? So you 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 say in there that God is an omnipresent spirit. We've already established he's always working at 100%, trying to... I guess we'll touch on what it is specifically he's trying to do in a minute here, but you mentioned God as being a causal agent, and you know this might get a little technical... But if you can, simply explain the difference between what you call he's a necessary but not a sufficient cause. Yeah, that's a bunch of technical
1: philosophical language. So a necessary cause is a cause that has to be there for something to happen. So we might say your parents having sex was a necessary cause in you're being conceived. A sufficient cause is a cause that's the only cause. So we wouldn't say your mother was the sufficient cause of your existing. You say, nope, your mom and dad had to have sex. Your dad had to be part of this as well. It takes two, baby. So um, a sufficient cause is the only one. And I'm saying God is never in any sort of situation the only cause to bring about outcomes. But God's always a necessary cause. It isn't like God sometimes just sort of steps out of things or intervenes occasionally to to act. God is always acting, always causal, but never the only cause.
0: Good. Yeah, that's probably as deep into that as we want to go. So that explains enough so we can ask these next questions here. So in a lot of your podcasts and explanations, I've I've heard you use this example of God's action in the world and what God is doing and maybe his limit. And so you give the example of People say, like, oh, well, love is the thing that's technically like his loving nature. Like, he can only do something that's loving, and loving's never controlling. They're like, well, that's not true because sometimes a little kid runs out in the road and it is loving to use physical force to push them. But you usually bring up that God is a spirit, therefore he can't physically do that. Yeah. I think we brought this up. When we talked last time, too, is a lot of people have the view that God is a spirit, yet God is still somehow able to physically interact with the world. But I guess the main question here is, at least the way it's it's worded here, like pushing someone out of the way of the car would seem to be in line with the child's entire organism. So it sounds more like rather than this loving nature being what's limiting God, again, it seems more the nature of his power in general i guess we already came to say that maybe you can say it both ways but i don't know like it when i'm explaining this to some people your idea like well it's it's weird because it makes love seem like it's like a chain like and rather than a beautiful thing it's like love is these chains that are on god and he's like i would love to come and help you but love i just i'm sorry my nature makes me so i can't do anything that i want to do
1: (laughs) yeah yeah I can understand that particular perspective, because they assume, they they begin with the notion that God could do it, but now love is limiting God in some sort of way. Really, there's two factors here, and I can't remember if we talked about this last time when we talked, but one of my views, this idea that God is a universal spirit without a localized body, that does seem in tension with at least some LDS traditions, or at least views, I should say that seemed to suggest that God has an actual body somewhere. I remember sending a note to David Paulson, who was a philosophy guy at BYU, about this. And, and he was pretty adamant that God actually had a body. And then since then, I've talked with people in the LDS tradition who talk about the Spirit of
0: Christ and some other things, some other ways you can go about this. Last time we talked about and just, I think... The way we got around that is just that though, yes, I think the LDS, I mean, it has a lot of philosophical problems that we've talked about a little bit on this podcast of like what that would even mean, but God's generally in the LDS view not interacting with creation through his body, and so he's still using the spirit in some way, so it's basically the... Though it's, you know, maybe a quirk, if you drill down to it, I think people are still not picturing God being Superman running around or having the ability to even do that. I mean, I guess you could say he technically could. But the way that God is interacting in most LDS people's minds is exactly the same way that he would on the traditional Christian view of God interacting through the Spirit. And However it is that God exerts, that's how he's doing it. So I want to say God really is a cause God
1: has both a mental and physical aspect. So that means that when God is causally active in every place in the world, God is present as an actual physical aspect. It's not a physical aspect. Again, we can perceive our five senses. But here I like to talk about non-sensory perception. And I once again will draw from process philosophy to talk about this kind of thing. But the basic idea, though, in terms of what you've been pointing out is that even though you and I can sometimes use our bodies to rescue someone from, let's say, they're freely walking out into the street in front of a truck, we might be able to use our bodies to grab them against their free will and rescue them. God doesn't have a localized body like you and I have. And so part of the big answer to, the, to why God can't prevent evil is that God has a nature of love but the other part is that God also doesn't have a localized physical body, and that's important
0: in some instances. I and mean, yeah, I think we did talk about that last time, but I guess the question is still kind of there. So why not just say? And I, I asked you this last time too, but why not just say God's nature, meaning his the nature of the type of being that God is, a non physical being? Why isn't that sufficient to say that's why he can't control? Why do you prefer saying that it's God's immutable? not immutable, but this part of his nature is immutable just because that's the part I had the biggest problem with last time, I guess, was saying like, well, there's something, at least for me, that it's hard for me to move to this point where like, well, God isn't free to choose to love. And that seems a little weird. Well, not weird, but like it puts love in a weird light. which like, oh, I'm just, I would love to do more, but I just have this darn loving nature. But I think, you know, we could almost, I think you'd almost agree... With me, I just am wording it a little bit differently, saying, like, what is his nature still? Yes. It's just, that's also, his phys- his non-physicalness is still an aspect of his nature that also does that. Okay.
1: That's true, yeah. So I, if I understand your question, it's something like this. Why don't you just say, God doesn't have a localized body. God's a universal spirit, and universal spirits just can't control others. Why well, go on to say, it's love that makes it that God can't control others? Maybe that's not quite what you're That's the gist, yeah, I guess. Yeah, And the reason I don't, in part, is because the vast majority of Christian theologians have wanted to say God is a universal spirit, God is incorporeal, but God has the kind of omnipotent power that God can control others. So it actually was in writing The Uncontrolling Love of God book that I realized the saying that God is a universal spirit without a localized body. I didn't see it in any of the literature. I mean— Yes, it's in the literature that God is incorporeal, but I didn't see it in any of the literature about the problem of evil as being crucial for understanding why God doesn't prevent evil. So I don't think just saying God is a universal spirit without a localized body goes far enough in uh, addressing the question of why God doesn't prevent evil in the world. I also want to say It's because God's inherently loving and love is uncontrolling for God.
0: All right, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so uh, this is the last question I'll ask in this section. So if God is uncontrolling and he's always trying to lure creation to his vision, why not be truly uncontrolling and just let creation choose its own destiny and do whatever it is going to do anyway? Like, why is God trying to lure it to his own vision? If he's truly uncontrolling... Why isn't he more like the force and just say, I'll let creation exist and I'll give it being, but whatever it chooses to do, this is what the way it's going to be. That would be one vision of God
1: on a model of God we might go with. The downside of this, of course, is that it's going to place values such as love, peace, hope, harmony, etc. Secondary for God. If you think that God's ultimate values is the well-being of all creation, then you're probably going to want to have a model of God in which God's trying to do something to lure, persuade toward it. If you think that the ultimate value for creation is just the creation to do its own thing, then yeah, that might be a model of God that makes a lot of sense. But if you think there's something about the goal of the creation to be well-being, not just creation doing its own thing, then you might want to have a God who's actively calling, persuading, commanding, luring, wooing, whatever language you want to use, drawing that creation toward that better way. Maybe here we should call upon a very common theme in Scripture and talk about parents and children. Like, you know, is the good parent the one who just has a totally hands-off policy, who like is uh, basically abandons their kid and says, you know, figure it out on your own? Or is the good parent the one who tries to guide, lead, lure, call, command toward what's good but doesn't control so somewhere between a manipulative helicopter parent and an absentee father the parent who is involved but not controlling that seems like the ideal way a loving parent would act
0: okay no that's a good metaphor because i guess i was just there the idea i'm like well if he's uncontrolling and that's what's so important then why is he trying to control but he's just having a hard time doing it because of his nature but that makes more sense. So it's like it's like a parent trying to teach their child even though, you know, he can't necessarily make them do something. Yeah. Well, that kind of segues into the next section. I guess, you know, cuz it's a book and it does that naturally. <laughs> but next the question that you're answering is what does it mean to say that God loves everyone and everything? And you give it a definition of love cuz you mentioned like, "Well, love is like the least defined thing in the English language because" And it is weird because, like, in, in English we have this word love, but in, like, for example, Greek, there's like several different types of love that you have different words for, and, you know, other languages have even more. And so, just to have one word to describe the way that you have good feelings towards everything is very limiting in English. So, let me read your definition here that you give. So, you say, to love is to act intentionally in relational response to God and others. To promote overall well-being. Then you go on to say, when I say love promotes overall well-being, you're not talking about just humans, you're talking about that including non-human creatures, plants, everything, and not just emotional, but like psychological, intellectual, social, economic, and so forth. You even think that our actions affect God's well-being. So when you define love, how did you come up with this particular definition and, and overall well-being. I'm going to ask you a few questions on what that means. So, can you define what that means as opposed to maybe individual well-being versus overall well-being? And Sure, yeah. I've actually written a couple books on this and one
1: has the really boring title, Defining Love. <laughs> so, it's something I've thought an awful lot about. And... In terms of well-being, it's a word that I've used because it seems to be the most encompassing of possible alternative words. I could have used words like flourishing, blessedness, goodness, happiness, eudaimonia, shalom, abundant life. There's all kinds of other possibilities, but well-being is a word that has both philosophical... And it's used in healthcare, medicine, and a, a lot. And I kind of like it. And when I say overall well being, I mean that love isn't just concerned about oneself or one's family or one's nation or community or even one's own species. That love asks the question of what's good for the whole, the common good. And uh, obviously, that's difficult to always understand and know. But we at least need to keep in mind that uh, we're asking the question, what's good for the whole? Now, that doesn't mean that we are always self-sacrificial. It doesn't mean that we never have any kind of self-care because our own good is part of the common good. But it does mean we have to look past our own good alone, that we have to look for the good of others. And... I am in the minority of Christian theologians in history in saying that we can actually affect God's well-being. That's part of, again, of what it means to be a relational theologian. But I think Augustine would hate that, for instance. So would Aquinas, Luther, Calvin. Uh, But I actually think that our actions make a difference to God such that God's well-being can be increased when we act in loving ways.
0: Yeah, like I said, yeah, throughout the history of Christian thought, that that has been kind of a, you know, the I guess with the the Greek philosophy coming in, being like, well, you know, obviously, if God's affected, he's gonna be, he can't change, you know, so he has to. If he does change, it's for the worst because he's already at maximum perfection, and so stating that he's actually being affected, I I don't know, like I think we talked about this last time, but yeah, yeah, I, I think the the overall view of believers throughout most if not all of Christian history, except for these top philosophical minds and influencers, believe that they can affect God, or that God at least cares about them in some way, because otherwise it doesn't really make a lot of sense. (laughs) Exactly, yes. One case in which the theology in the
1: pews, the theology amongst the normal, less educated Christian just who reads the Bible, is actually better than the formal trained theologians who followed the Many of them, at least, were influenced by uh, Greek philosophical traditions.
0: You know, our LDS audience, that's a strong part of the LDS tradition, too, is that God is definitely in relationship with people, not just yeah. a one-sided thing. Yes. In the next part, you go in to explain the essential part of God's property, and that God can't choose not to love, and I have a few questions on that. So, do you see any problems with saying that God has the essential property of being loving when... Being loving seems to require something outside of God's self. Like, for example, I can't have the essential characteristic to be best friends with Joe because that would require Joe, and therefore it can't be my essential property because it requires something that's not me.
1: No, that's a really good question. And here, you know, I've said a few times coming up to this position that I differ from other theologians in history, On this particular point, I not only differ from the majority of theologians in Christian history, but even the majority of Christian theologians today who are operating, in that I truly think God everlastingly has creaturely others to love. And we're going to get to this when we get to the chapter on creation, but this is an important part of my view that I think aligns pretty nicely with at least what I know about the LDS tradition And it's a rejection of creation ex nihilo. But I think God everlastingly creates, everlastingly relates, everlastingly loves creaturely others. And so to say that love is essential to God means that there's always been those others who are non-divine whom God loves. Whether they're complex or very simple but that's not the question so much as that there is an actual other for God to
0: love. All right, yeah, I guess you're right. We'll we'll get to exactly what that means in that section. All right, the next one relating to God's nature of love. You said God can't choose whether or not he loves, but he can choose how he loves. And so that brought up this question for me. Like, well, can God choose what level he loves at? For example, like, I can do a nice thing that isn't technically unloving, but it isn't maximally loving. Because it just seems like if he has to do the maximally loving thing in all situations, then he really can't choose how to love. Because he, let's say he has a multiple choice test. So the creature is the one determining how God will love. For example, a, a creature gets into a situation somehow, and then God could see options A, B, C, and D, with A being do the maximally loving thing, but God is metaphysically, if you will, bound to do A because of his loving nature. So can God really choose? Mm, Great question. Yeah.
1: I think God always does the maximally loving thing, but God's not sure what the maximally loving thing is amongst other possible maximally loving things. Why? Because God doesn't know the future and God doesn't know how creatures are going to act in the future. Take an analogy of parenthood. Supposing I want to do the maximally loving thing for my daughter who's 22 years old. I might think to myself, is it better for me to get her a car right now so she has transportation? Or is it better for me to let her save up some money so she can feel like she really has earned this car It's not always easy for me to know which the maximally best, in part because she's going to make decisions in the future. And I don't know what those decisions are going to be. And so I'm like, oh, man, what is the most loving thing? I'm I'm committed to being the most loving father I can be. And I know there's a whole bunch of things that aren't loving that I could do to her. But amongst the ones that seem to be the best, I'm not sure what's number one at this moment because I don't know what she's going to decide in the future. I think we can apply that same analogy to God. Even though God is much smarter than I am, God knows all the options. God doesn't know what we're going to choose tomorrow, the next moment, 10 years from now. So God sees all the possibilities in any one particular moment in Corey's life and knows that there's a bunch of possibilities that aren't going to be the best. But amongst the best, there's more than one often that uh, God's not sure exactly how the future is going to play out. So God can't be sure which of those is number one. So there's a real freedom of choice in that particular moment. God's always going to do the maximally loving, but there's a number of possible maximally loving options.
0: To say if God doesn't know the future, therefore he can't see exactly how it's going to play out. So he's not bound by the one that's going to play out to the perfect future because he doesn't know that. It's just... And that, you know, that aligns with my view of, like, a lot of people, like, am I, am I destined to marry one person? Where I tend to favor the view of, like, there are probably people that you wouldn't get along with, but there's a, a wide range of people that if you try and you put your effort in, you'll have a great relationship with. It, that's the way I feel about it, too. Yep, that's my view as well. This is a real advantage,
1: I, I think, over what I'll call classical theism. Because if you are a classical theist, you think that God is outside of time— knows the future exhaustively, always wants to do the loving best, then it doesn't seem like God has any real freedom in any particular moment. The future's been decided, determined. God's always going to do the loving best. It's hard to imagine God has any true freedom in that way. Maybe freedom at the beginning of time to decide which particular universe and outcomes that are going to be best but even then if you think god is loving god's not going to choose a subpar option god would choose the very best option so it doesn't seem like god's even free then in this particular view god has some limited freedom because god always loves but god has freedom in choosing how to love because god can't be certain which of those options is going to bring about the maximal good in the future? Because the future is open and there's other decisions that are going to be made.
0: So I guess this is kind of entailed in that, but I mean, maybe it might be a scary thought for some people. So since God can't foresee the future, is it possible that his attempts to lure it towards something good could have unintended consequences and perhaps lead to greater evil than otherwise would have been? I mean, I guess there's no way we can know the counterfactual there, but... Yeah, we can't know
1: for sure. God always does the best amongst the possible best in any particular moment. But yeah, there's, you know, what would be a good example of God doing the loving best in any particular moment, but it ended up having a negative outcome?
0: Well, I guess humans can always choose to screw it up in some way, I guess. So that's always a possibility. (laughs) Right, right. So it's never going to
1: totally be God's fault. It's going to be creatures refusing to cooperate with God. But here's an argument. It's a kind of a general one that someone might make. It's not my argument, but someone might make this argument. Look, um, we're in the midst of a planet that humans seem to be driving toward the possible extinction of their own species <laughs> through climate change, etc., man, God sure made a bonehead mistake in drawing through evolution creatures with so much capacity to screw things up. God may have thought it was loving to have these complex creatures because then they could do complex acts of love. But it turns out having complex capacities for love also means complex capacities to choose evil. And these humans are choosing to act in ways that are hurting themselves in creation bonehead move, God. That could be one way to think about it. Now, I think God is always going to be offering the best possible, and God wants the maximal love and well-being, and that means complex creatures are involved. But one might have some questions about God's wisdom in in creating creatures who could screw things up so royally.
0: Okay, so the last part of that is you mentioned that there's a a particular critic— who basically wrote like, well, it sounds like the uncontrolling love of God should be the most pitied God because of the way he relates. And I was wondering, well, is this God, like if you had to give an omni on him, at least from the critics perspective, he's like, well, he's omni frustrated because he's basically always trying to lure creation, but it just obviously doesn't ever seem to get there. Or
1: it doesn't get there. He wouldn't probably say it never gets there, but there's lots of failures along the way. And You would think that a God who was really competent would do it a much better job. And this poor God, we pity this God because things aren't working out so well.
0: So, yeah, I guess just briefly say, what what did you have to say to this guy?
1: (laughs) Well, I think, you know, I don't pity this God. I think this God is maximally involved. But I think my critic there begins with a particular view of God's power. And prizes the God who is efficiently bringing about outcomes that God alone can guarantee. And, and of course, from an uncontrolling love of God perspective, that's not going to be something I endorse. So um, I don't think we have to say, oh, poor God. I also think God is compassionate, sympathetic. You know, this relational God that you've already mentioned is important for the LDS tradition. So if you begin with the God of love and love involves being open and vulnerable and relational then uh, you've got the possibility that uh, God is going God's will is going to be frustrated sometimes and God's not going to like that. I mean it sounds an awful lot like the God of the Bible to me, but that's kind of the way that you are going to be operating if you start with love rather than power or controlling power for God.
0: That was the last part of that section. So the next section, I actually have the least amount of questions for, just because a question that will probably require a bit of a—I mean, depending on how you want to choose to answer it—a bit more of a involved answer. But I have a, only a few questions. So that is, how does Jesus fit into a theology of uncontrolling love? And so we—you know—we already talked about miracles, and so that's a big part of Jesus' life. And so I think you've pretty much answered for the most part, Jesus and his miracles, let's say he's acting with the power of God, and we can say he didn't unilaterally bring about these things you mentioned in there. He's often saying, your faith made you whole, or even point out, even Jesus sometimes wasn't able to heal everyone. He says, a lot of people came to Jesus, and many left, and they were healed. So, implying that not all of them were healed. So, that's all well and good, and I think that's you know entailed in what we talked about in the miracle section. And you don't mention this in the chapter, but I was just wondering, what's your view on who Christ is? Because that's, you know, one of the most, I I guess, one of the biggest reasons there's a lot of Christian denominations is disagreement on this question. So you might not have a settled view on that, but who is Christ? Is he God himself, or is he the son of God? Is he a human? How, How do you view Christ in God's plan?
1: Yeah, this is a really tough question. I've wrestled with it for years and years and years And I'm beginning to move toward a position that I feel more confident about. I haven't written about it a lot. I was planning to write about that in this chapter, but it just got too long. And it's such an important and such a controversial question. I decided it would be better to just devote something that had more space to that. But this is how I go about doing it, uh, answering the question who Jesus is or who Christ is. I begin with what I think the Bible says about Jesus. And the Bible, as I read it, primarily portrays Jesus as a human. Rare, if ever, do the biblical authors call Jesus God. In fact, I don't think they ever call Jesus God. They'll sometimes use language that leads some Christians to think Jesus is divine. I and the Father are one is a classic phrase. But the vast majority of time, Jesus is talking about the Father as if they're separate. And Jesus has all kinds of limitations, or maybe limitations is pejorative, but Jesus just doesn't exhibit the kind of attributes we normally think God has. Jesus doesn't know everything. He makes mistakes. Jesus doesn't seem to have the power to do everything that we think God has the power to do. Jesus isn't omnipresent. He's walking around Galilee all kinds of sort of attributes that we want to say that's part of what it means to be divine, and Jesus doesn't seem to exhibit or have those attributes. The one thing that Jesus does seem to do very well, if not perfectly, is love. And I think God always loves perfectly. So I'm willing to say that Jesus accurately portrays God's nature as love, and that's what I talk about in this chapter an awful lot. But Jesus doesn't tell us much, if anything, about God's other important attributes that most believers think are essential to God. So there are certain phrases in the academy that scholars use to talk about the kind of Christology that I'm describing, and one of them is a spirit Christology. A spirit Christology says that Jesus of Nazareth Responds perfectly to the Holy Spirit in his life, and in doing so, tells us something important or essential about who God is, particularly God's love. I'm fully on board with that particular move. I'm queasy with the creedal claims that Jesus is fully human and fully divine, in part because I think those claims assume a particular metaphysics that I reject, and in part because. It just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. And even those people who claim that they affirm this paradoxical Jesus is fully human, fully divine, when you actually hang out with them and read or read their works, they tend to swing one way or the other and don't affirm the paradox well. So I'm now drawn toward the spirit Christology that begins with the human Jesus and says that he reveals something about God but we shouldn't use all the kind of language that we usually use about God to talk about Jesus. I was kind of rambling. Sorry.
0: No, that that's that's good. It's a it's a, like I said, I understand the type of question that that is. It's like, what's your entire theology of Jesus? That's a big question. But uh, well, that makes sense. I guess in light of that, just because I assume most of your audience is Christian and the listeners to this podcast likely are too. So, again, if you haven't worked this out fully, that's fine. But it's often said, you know, Jesus died for us, or Jesus somehow, his death did something. And, you know, we, we'll talk about the resurrection later, but did his life accomplish something more than being an exemplar of God's love?
1: Yeah, so this is it sounds like you're asking me something that a lot of Christians call, what is Jesus' atonement, or what's his work in the world?
0: Yes, is that a thing? Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah I reject... Many of the classic views of atonement, the ones that say that God is really pissed at humans and sends Jesus to take our punishment, I'm against that one. Or that somehow Jesus satisfies God's wrath, an Anselm version, I'm against that one. Or that God's in the battle with Satan and God tricks Satan by giving the Son and then the Son comes back to life, I'm against that. There's certain views of what we call a Christus Victor thing that I can adopt, but the way those play out, they don't satisfy me either. The one that's sort of left on the table for people like me is uh, an Abelardian view, named this Abelard, which is, you're mentioning, an exemplar kind of thing. That one doesn't go far enough for me because the way it sounds is if Jesus is out there and we're kind of looking at Jesus and saying, man, I'd really like to be like that guy. I think I'm going to imitate this guy. Well, I think that's important, but I think Jesus does more than just set an example that we need to follow. I think Jesus' life, teaching, death, and resurrection provides the impetus and change in history for a whole new way of thinking and living that would not have been possible had he not lived the way he did. Now, would not have been possible. I'm not saying that there never could be another Jesus, but what Jesus does actually makes a historical difference. It changes, it alters history. And that's more than just being a good example. That means there's now a community, a way of being in the world, a way of living, or to use my language in the book, There are now possibilities that are open for God to present to us that would not have been there had Jesus not lived the life he lived. So my atonement theory, I sometimes call it the um, alteration of existence theory. I think it's more than just Jesus as an example. I think Jesus' life, death, teachings, and resurrection create a whole new way of being in the world, and that's crucial.
0: All right. Fair enough. And thank you for indulging me on that one. I know you might want to explain that more fully elsewhere, but I think you did a, an apt job there. So thank you. All right. So the next section is actually something that I think rings very well in harmony with the LDS views. And there's a lot of, you know, attempts from LDS thinkers and philosophers that, you know, have tried to wrestle with the opposition to this view and, and the general view. So The next section is the question, if God created the universe, why can't God stop evil? Implying if God has enough power to create the world, then obviously he should be able to do all this other stuff. You use that as a springboard to talk about, for lack of a better term, your cosmology and how God relates to what we'll call creation. So as mentioned earlier, you deny creation ex nihilo. I can see how you get there, because like I said, God, as we talked about, He has a loving nature, and having a loving nature requires another because you can't love without someone else there. I guess some people, you know, I guess some philosophers in the past have been like, you know, God contemplates himself and loves himself so much, but, you know, that's not how anyone that I know defines love. Love requires a relationship with something. And so you're saying that metaphysically seems to require that there is something else that coexists eternally with God. And maybe I'm overstating. What you would say, but let me let me just read this paragraph and then you can kind of explain that. So you say, I reject the theory God ever or even could create from absolutely nothing. But I believe God created the heavens, earth, and every living and non-living thing. If there are other universes besides ours, a multiverse, if you will, God created them too. In fact, I think God creates in every moment in relation to creation, and God's moment-by-moment creating activity is everlasting, without beginning or end. You're saying God's nature is to be in relation with creation, and you give it a name down the line. But I guess before you answer that, to help us understand, can you define what you mean by created or to create when referring to God? Because I think a lot of people just right off the bat create to them. They're like, oh, you created it from nothing.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really common reaction to people, even though there's not—and let me repeat this— one shred of biblical evidence for that view. It just drives me bonkers the way people think that God's creating has to be from nothing when there's no, absolutely no biblical evidence for this, at least explicit evidence. Here, I think a bunch of Catholics, evangelicals, mainline liberals, orthodox people have come to the Bible, influenced by a particular philosophical tradition, that can be linked actually back to Gnostics, and read passages about God creating and have this assumption that God is creating out of nothing. Here the LDS got something really right, and I think LDS folks ought to proclaim it more loudly, (laughs) and that is that God doesn't create from absolute nothingness. Now, I have my own particular way of laying that out, and we might get to that, but the biblical evidence suggests that God always creates in relation to something. Now, the biblical writers have various ways of talking about that. The something out of which God creates is described in different ways. But they never, never talk about God creating from absolutely nothing. And yet, as you rightly say, that is the very—it's not just the way academic theologians think. Your average Christian on the street— thinks that when you say God
0: creates, it's from absolute nothingness. You're among friends, I guess, in the LDS in in having that mode of thought, just because, you know, that's part of the theology. But, But also, like you said, like there's the biblical view is not the... Well, I mean, if you're getting technical, the biblical view isn't intended to be a scientific view in the first place. No. But also, if you read carefully, basically it's saying that in the view of whoever wrote Genesis, that God basically divided waters or was fighting against chaos or conquering like there was something existing there another view that i think uh william lane craig for example likes to point to the big bang is the beginning of the universe and i was watching some debate with him with a uh, professor and like i like william lane craig he's a very smart guy and i I like some of his reasoning, but he's a big proponent of creation ex nihilo, and it's kind of integral to a lot of his arguments, and so it doesn't work sometimes. But he was de- debating a uh, some scientist or something, and he was like, well, you know, clearly the Big Bang is pointing to this as well, that God creates from nothing, and the scientists point out to him like, well, no, the Big Bang is when our universe began as we know it. That doesn't mean nothing existed before that. It just means our instruments, like the physics that exist now in the universe break down at that point, and we can't detect past that point, but that doesn't mean there wasn't anything beyond that point. And I think in the book, you point out, it seems that you are in favor of a multiverse theory. Would that be correct? It depends on how you understand multiverse.
1: I'm definitely in favor of the idea that there are successive universes. And if that's a multiverse, then I'm in favor of that. There's, There's another idea that's more common, that there are universes, multiple universes existing simultaneously. I'm open to that possibility. I don't reject it out of hand, but there's no scientific evidence for that, just like there's no scientific evidence for successive universes. So we have to ask ourselves the question, what metaphysical reasons would we want to have to suppose there are multiple simultaneously existing universes or multiple successively or one after another existing universes? And, um, you know, obviously that's getting into the core of my thesis here for me, what brought me to believe that God doesn't create out of absolutely nothing. And that even at the big bang, God created from the remains of a previous universe, the chaos of a previous universe. What motivated me was the questions of evil again. That is, uh, if God's got the kind of power to create something out of absolutely nothing, Boy, it's hard to solve that problem of evil because God seems to have then the capacity to do just about anything that's logically possible, at least. And that would mean creating things instantaneously now in the present to stop evil. A uh, really famous uh, Christian theologian, who some of your viewers might know, a guy named Alvin Plantinga. He has this really nice illustration. He says, because uh, he believes in creation out of nothing. He says, if God wanted to, God could instantaneously create a full-grown horse in Times Square. Just boom. And that logically follows from the way creation ex nihilo is understood. But if God did that, of course, God should be able to create steel walls to stop bullets from you know, killing people in a firing squad. God should instantaneously be able to put a a nice soft pillow under George Floyd's head so he wasn't suffocated by that police officer. There's all kinds of things God should be doing, it seems, if God can create something out of nothing instantaneously. If God has that capacity, man, I can't see how you can solve the problem of evil. So that started motivating me to think about, should I really affirm creation out of nothing? And I realized there wasn't any good biblical reasons for it. And in the book, I list nine or ten other uh, reasons why we ought to reject creation out of nothing. But it was really the problem of evil that first got me interested in this question.
0: All right, well, let me ask you about, just so I can kind of understand what it is that you mean by certain things. So in the book, you say, I embrace the idea God created from creaturely stuff. And you obviously left that ambiguous on purpose. Yeah. So the way I'm understanding that is God is a self-existing eternal being, and perhaps whatever the, I don't know what you'd call it, like the primary elements of the universe are also are co-eternal with God, but they're just not necessarily organized in any specific way. And so God is always creating out of that, well, let's say they coexist eternally, I know that just blows my mind already to say yeah. something like that just because, yeah. you know, we can't conceive of anything like that. Let's say they're in this, you know, eternal dance with one another. And so you, you give the metaphor and you're like, I acknowledge this is kind of weird, but this is a, a good metaphor. So you say, let's say there's a guy named Jim, right? And so let's say Jim's nature is to have a spouse. And so even though it's weird, let's say Jim eternally had a spouse of in some form, but that spouse grows and gets old. But at some point he has a child with that spouse, and that spouse eventually dies, but then he, when it comes of age let 's say he it 's weird I, we all understand you you point that out he marries that child and then continually has children so it 's always out of something that god 's previously had relationship with, but it 's not from nothing it 's always something so the way at least in mormonism it 's understood and you can this is where you can differentiate is that the primary elements also coexist with God and what that primary elements means. You know, science advances, tends to be interpreted in different ways of whether that's waves and particles and quarks, there's things that pop in and out of existence. It gets complicated, but is that kind of sort of what you have in mind too, or am I a little off base there?
1: Let me begin my answer by saying that uh, I sent you a copy of the book And I took out that particular illustration that you just gave (laughs) in the book because I had some reviewers, including an LDS reviewer, who thought that was just a little too weird (laughs) that Jim, the character in the illustration, would marry someone, they would have children, and then he would then marry one of the children who would then have children and marry one of those children. And they just thought that was too weird. But I'm going to set that aside just for a moment. I got it. I understand. I think it's a really great illustration myself. I couldn't come up with a better one. That's why I didn't replace it with something else. But so what I want to say, Corey, is I want to say that there is no basic elements that they themselves are co-eternal with God. I think something new emerges moment by moment. So to use the analogy of Jim and the wife, if I said there was in my analogy, this is not my analogy, but one analogy would be Jim has the same wife eternally, but that wife has some changes. That wife grows old or, you know, has different hair or whatever. The wife would be the same wife, but different changes. That, that sounds like kind of the view you're saying Mormonism proposes, And I'm not affirming that. What I'm trying to say is that there are actually new things moment by moment. There are new universes. And there's no stuff that's eternal that is in all the universes. However, the chain of universes has no interruption. So something new in this moment created out of the previous, something new in the next, something new in the next, et cetera, et cetera. Twelve moments out, it's a different thing than it was twelve moments previous, but there's continuity there. I'm trying to get past a worry that many people have that the world is co-eternal with God, and therefore God's not the only eternal being. I want to say, nope, God is the only eternal being, but God's always in relation to creaturely others, each of which had a beginning.
0: Does that help? It does. Um, I'm just just out of curiosity. So, why do people have that worry? Like, could, let's say I understand being like another, you know, thinking entity or something. But just just because it seems to, at least for the way I understand the way that science understands things now, is that though things are in completely different states, and like I said, the laws of physics may break down, like you know, conservation of energy or something like that. Like the there are some things that seem to be, at least physically, you know, waves and particles maybe, it, like, they, they never have gone away. And so, because the way I was picturing it is like, let's say God, it's his nature to make a vase. And so he's always creating a vase, and then eventually over eons of time, the vase is eroding and breaks down. And so, but he still has the, the base of it, and I understand it's still not a great analogy, but then he can make a different vase out of that, and then a different, but it... Uh, I don't know. Just why is that a problem?
1: (laughs) Yeah, here's some of the worries people have. One worry is couched in this way. God's not creating anything new, these people say. God's just rearranging stuff that's always been there. And it sounds more attractive, especially when people think about themselves, to think that they can become really new creations. Now, obviously it can't be so radically new that there's no continuity with the past. When Cory becomes a new creation in Christ, there's still some continuity with the old Cory. But there are many people who worry that there's not enough newness, that it's just a rearranging. Another worry that people have is when they read passages of Scripture that seem to say there's only one everlasting God, then they say, well, that sounds like there's only one thing that's always been around. Now, maybe you say, well, that doesn't exclude the possibility of a lasting world, and that's probably be true, but that's how some people, you know, a worry they have. I think a lot of it really, Corey, is deep intuitions and aesthetics. Like, there's a lot of people who really reject my view because their aesthetic, their intuition is that having a God who creates out of something everlastingly just doesn't make God transcendent enough. You know, they want a God who's really transcendent. And I say to them, look, I've got a God who's transcendent in all kinds of ways, just not in this particular way, because if we go this route, all kinds of problems emerge. But it's kind of an intuition they have that I don't share with them. So maybe that's what it comes down to in this worry about having an eternal world, or maybe eternal world's not right, an eternal amount of basic elements that are rearranged in different ways. It sounds threatening Here's another worry. I should have started with this one, because this is probably the biggest one. I, and most Christians, want to say God creates all things. But if you got some elements that are eternal, it's harder to imagine how God created them, since they would also be eternal. My view, I can say God creates everything, moment by moment, but the creative process had no beginning. So the process is eternal, but none of the individuals or things created are themselves eternal. What do you think of those?
0: I mean, I I guess I get that. It just just brings up the question for me, though, of, so, I mean, again, like, eternal is a hard thing to conceive of in general. But it seems on your view, your view almost requires that there is something co-eternal in some aspect. And there's no first moment of when he started creating. He's always doing something. But it seems like it, requires a relationship with something at all times. Elsewise, he can't have a loving nature.
1: That's right. So in the analogy that you mentioned earlier, that is, there's another analogy that is in the book, and this is the analogy of Jim, whose nature it is to love and be married, and Jim has multiple partners, one after another. So it's his nature to be married, so there has to be someone to marry, but each of his partners dies, you know, comes alive and dies. So he goes, uh, uh, he mar- he has uh, relationship after relationship. He's always in relationship with at least one other person or one other partner. But none of those partners live as long as Jim does. So that was the kind of attempt I was trying to go with God. Yep, there's always going to be someone God is creating, relating, and loving. But that thing or those things don't themselves have to be eternal. It just the chain has to be everlasting.
0: Okay, and I think, yeah, I did write that down. So I have one question about that, and it actually transitions into the next section, so. Okay. All right, so you say, well, no universe, because you, you bring up, you're like, well, people might think you're saying that the universe, you know, exists forever or something. Like, well, obviously, no, the universe had a beginning to what universe proper, and it's going to have an end, a heat death, or a big crunch, or whatever it is, it's going to die. That's, you know, inevitable. So, while you say no universe exists everlastingly, a succession of entities, creatures, or universes always exists. The everlastingly creative God creates each creature and universe in this succession. Every creature is temporary in this sense. All creaturely others have a beginning, and no universe is co eternal with God. And so, That brings up the question, well, if all creatures have a beginning, does that then entail that all creatures will have an end? And if so, that raises a lot of questions for the next section, which I guess this is kind of a weird transition, but, you know, for the afterlife. Yeah,
1: it's a great question, yeah. I'm not committed to either answer on that one, Corey. It could be that creatures can exist without end after they are born, or it could be that creatures decide after some period of time that they want to stop their existence. I don't think God kills them off, but I'm open to either possibility. My metaphysics is also open to either possibility. So to put it another way, in terms of the afterlife, it could be that uh, after I die and I'm loving God in the afterlife and becoming more united with God's will and this deep love relationship that after 50,000 years, I say, you know, I'm not sure there's much more reason to keep going on. This is really great, but, you know, I'm not sure I'm contributing much more. Um, Maybe it's time for me to just stop existing. Or maybe... It's the case that I say, you know, I'm loving this stuff. I don't want to ever die. I don't want to ever
0: give it up. I'm just going to keep going. I'm open to either possibility. Just in that, so is, and this might go back to your material mental monism, but, and we'll get into this in this next section, but whatever it is that survives beyond death, can that survive the heat death of the universe, or are they not related in that way? Like, is the physical death of the universe...
1: Yeah, I think it can survive the physical death of the universe, yeah.
0: The next question that you answer is, what hope do we have if God's love is uncontrolling? And this, you refer to the questions of the afterlife and the eschaton, and, you know, you've rightly pointed out a lot of things, like most Christians view God coming in at the end, and as you say, kicking butt and taking, names, taking care of everything and making sure that everything's right in the end. You know, obviously on this view... It can't look exactly like that. So I guess to sum up a lot of questions, what do you have in your view of the eschaton or end times? I think God is always in the business of inviting creatures to a loving
1: relationship. When they are alive in these bodies and when they continue to exist as subjective minds or souls or spiritual bodies, there's a bunch of different ways Christians have talked about uh, afterlife experience. But God continues to invite them to a love relationship. So it isn't like after you die, there's the judgment, and some people go to heaven, some people go to hell, or various tiers of heaven, or whatever. Um, it's that God always invites everyone in this life and the afterlife to a life of love. However, people in this life and after their bodies die, as they continue to ex- have subjective experience, beyond their bodily death, they can say no to God if they want to. And when people say no to God, they experience the natural negative consequences that come from saying no to love. I don't believe in a punishing God. I don't believe in a God who sends people to hell for eternity. But I do believe in an uncontrolling God who can't force people to say yes to love. And because of that, people can choose their own hell, we might say, People can choose to have the natural negative consequences of saying no to love. But God doesn't ever give up on them. And that means, in my view, there's the possibility that God will eventually persuade every last creature capable of responding to God to say yes to God and have the universal reconciliation or redemption of all things that the Apostle Paul talks about.
0: I really like that view, and I think— and not that this is the only reason why, it's just how I relate to things, just because this is the religion I grew up with. But in Mormonism, there's a really strong sense of that too, because I think Joseph Smith, for example, I think he was he was heavily influenced by Methodism, but also Universalism, but he was afraid of Universalism, which is the idea that you know God will save everybody, that's the way it is. And so what he came up with, and I think what you're hinting at here, is that God will save everyone that wants to be saved. He will allow them to make that choice for them. So it's it can be universalism, but that's not up to God. That's up to us. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know that was Joseph Smith's view,
1: but it sounds very similar to mine.
0: Okay. So, I, again, I think I've asked this, but in a different way. But let me just ask it in relation to the vision of the eschaton. So you write, you know, is there really a hope that everyone is going to eventually choose God? But that brought up this question. So you say, we have genuine hope all will eventually cooperate because time is on the side of an everlasting God. You know, eternity is a long time. But does this mean God's ultimate goal, in your view, is... And I I worded this stupid, but try to get the good question out of it. Does this mean God's ultimate goal is to eventually have all power over other creatures in that his will is the one enacted at all times? And if that is his view, then how is what God's ultimate goal is, different from like the Borg on Star Trek, where it's like one mind and like, oh, you're finally all cooperating with me. That's all I ever wanted was you to submit, which I don't think is your view. But can you explain why that's not your view? I mean, I could see how
1: one could characterize my view that way. It's just that, again, I'm a theologian of love. So love always comes first. I think God's ultimate goal is well-being, love that all would be in harmony and enjoy the benefits of a loving relationship. So it's not about God saying, man, I just can't wait until everyone cooperates with me because then I'm like the most powerful ever. That's true in one sense because when we do cooperate with God, God's will is done and God wants God's will to be done. But not because God's an egoist who just likes power hungry. No, it's because God is an altruist who wants the well-being of all and knows that our cooperation means we appreciate or can enjoy the bliss that God wants. And so, um, yeah, I think that's God's ultimate goal for things and what God is calling and drawing all uh, creation to. Now, there's another question that, that maybe is hinted at in your question that I'm still wrestling with, and that is, is it the case that the perfect future is a kind of melding into God, a kind of fusion. The mystics called this union with God. I'm not sure I want to go that direction. If union means absolute identity with God, I actually think there's value in diversity and in, again, real relationship. (laughs) And if there was somehow absolute union of all things with God there wouldn't be the relationship necessary for a god whose i think nature is love so i'm i'm not drawn toward a union in that kind of sense but if union just means cooperation with god then i'm totally on board with that
0: okay so for sake of time i'm just going to jump to this next part here so we teased it at the beginning so now i think we understand the metaphysics of this view of god and how he loves, what it is. So now we ask the question, if God can't control, why are we praying? Doesn't seem to be able to do things when I pray. Should I pray to be safe on my trip? Should I pray for someone to get better? Does that really make a difference? Or should I be more praying in line with, help me know what to do? I'm guessing you're going to say something along the lines of both and.
1: Yeah, I am going to say along the lines of both and, yeah. So this is an important question, and Christians have different responses to it. People on the more conservative side, maybe evangelical side of the Christian tradition, they oftentimes think of a God who can control, and they think that their prayers might, at least in some cases, make it somehow inspire or twist God's arm to get up and get something done single-handedly. There's all kinds of problems with that, and we've already talked about those, but that's the way a lot of people think about at least petitionary prayer, asking God to do something. Maybe God will respond, get the job done all alone. Because of the problems that emerge in that particular view, including the problems of God seemingly not doing a lot of the things we ask God to do, a lot of other Christians, usually on the more liberal or progressive side, will say, well, prayer really doesn't change God, it changes us. And so we should pray because we'll become more humble, we'll recognize our dependence upon God, we'll have uh, greater peace, we'll have a sense of purpose in the world. But all these kinds of things are making a difference to us, but God is not really answering or responding, or God's not even affected in this kind of way. At least doesn't have to be thought to be affected in this kind of way. And so prayer is really about us, not about God. My vision says this, God is truly relational. God is truly affected by absolutely everything that happens in the universe, and praying is an event, is a happening, is an action that really has an effect on God. Furthermore, we live in a universe that is interrelational, and that means that my prayer not only affects God, but affects myself and affects others. Not only other humans, but other entities in reality, creatures, etc. There's this kind of interrelatedness of reality such that our actions make a difference to others. When we combine these two views of our actions affecting God and affecting others, we can talk about how our prayers actually make a difference to God and present new possibilities, new avenues for action, New things for God to respond to in the next moment because we prayed. It doesn't mean that our prayers somehow make God able to control others. Like God is saying, man, I would love to do this thing single-handedly, but I just got to have your cooperation for me to stamp this thing out and fix it all by myself. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that our prayers can actually affect God and affect others such so the future is really different in some way because we have
0: prayed. I think that's great. And I, you know, we had a podcast with Mark Harris as well about prayer. Oh, you did? Oh, good. I don't know. I think it's actually one of the main benefits of this point of view is that prayer actually does matter on this view, whereas on other views, it just doesn't. That's actually one thing that kind of started me on like a, a faith journey is like, I'm like, when I pray, it seems to really what I should be saying is like, god just do whatever you're going to do anyway cuz i don't that's what you're going to do why am i even praying
1: <laughs> yep i totally agree one of the things that was helpful for me and i think i talk about this in the book maybe i don't i don't remember one of the questions i had related to prayer was prayers of praise and worship like you know i remember being in church when i was in college taking these theology classes and thinking to myself, now, what are we actually doing here in this congregation? When we sing songs and we say prayers and we say, praise you, God, for your, your loving kindness. What are we doing here? Are we, are we just kind of reminding ourselves of our beliefs? Is it kind of like a corporate way of doing theology? Or is God actually affected in some way? When I'm singing songs and I sometimes feel really emotional, is it just all about me and sort of self-therapy or self-motivation, or is it having any effect on God? And one of the benefits of this particular way that I've been describing is I can say that my prayers of praise, my worship, actually can please God. I'm actually affecting the God of the universe when I praise God. Yes, I'm also maybe reminding myself of what I think God's attributes are, but because God is relational, God can be pleased by our
0: expressions of praise. Yeah, that's that's great because just like the view of prayer on this view, it it opens since it's not just you; it's a it's a two way street between you and God, and so that opens up those possibilities. You did put that in the book because you asked, and yeah, I I I thought I thought that was a a very powerful thought too. It makes it mean something more than like what you're saying. It's like, oh, we're all just here. We love God. He's so great. But he already knows that. But it's like, you know, it actually affects him in a good way.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's important to me. The last thing you ask is, do I, Thomas Award, know for sure that God can't prevent evil? And you go and you say, obviously, no, I don't know that for sure. You said that as I've matured, I don't think that most people should say that they know things about God either. But... What you're proposing here is a model, and it's a theory about who God is, how God acts, what he's like in the world, and to you and to many others, because obviously this idea has caught on with a lot of people, it makes sense. So it's not just like a willy nilly idea, like, I wonder if God's a lizard. It's thought through, I don't know if a system is the right word, but it's a, you know, I guess theology, they have a word for it, where it's like, If you go with your intuitions that god is loving and that means he's not controlling then here's how the rest of that's going to play out and so the model you say draws from various resources including the bible but not just the bible and this rings true with mormonism as well too you say it seeks truth wherever it can be found because i i I, there's a popular quote about mormonism is like mormonism is truth wherever that may be found so it's the same thing like just the god and his gospel the gospel itself whatever that means is truth so that can be interpreted in various ways but i think i interpret it the way you would hear so plausible models you say build from arguments and experience and various sources and the way the world seems to work so it's not just like i said it's not just some idea because anyone can come just make something up but that's not what you've done here but that doesn't mean that god came to you and told you this for sure and that you're like this is definitely god and i know for sure that's god it's not like that nor can it be I don't
1: know about you, but I've been in a lot of places, including growing up, when I got the distinct feeling that the person talking was absolutely certain that they had got some aspect of God figured out. Like they were the voice of God. God spoke to them. And, you know, I didn't have that in my life, at least, you know, nothing like they seem to have. And it kind of got me worried. And in fact, today it worries me a lot when people walk around just so sure of themselves and how they understand God. So I wanted my readers to know that I'm not in that camp. Even though this whole book is offering answers to their questions, I don't want them to think that I know these things with certainty, that I'm a know-it-all, that I've got God figured out. However, as you rightly put it, um, this is not me throwing spaghetti against the wall or willy-nilly. I'm offering a model that, to be bold, I think is the best one available. Now, if you come up with another model that's better, I'll switch to yours. But this is the best one that I've been able to come up with. And so I'm offering it to the reader saying, I'm not sure,
0: I'm not certain, but this is the best one I know. Well, that's great. So, you know, life is a balance between, you know, there's doubt and faith, and depending on how you define that, but you should live... Kind of somewhere in the middle, like, I think a lot of Christianity is afraid of this word doubt, but if you frame it more in, like, when you have questions about God, it's not questioning God, but it's actually part of a a valid relationship with God is to have questions. Right. And so, anyone that listens to this podcast hopefully is a questioner or some a seeker, I guess, of truth. So, what do you see as the, or what's your plan, I guess, or vision for the future of this idea. Well, I'm relying a lot on you, Corey, to make it a reality. (laughs) Well, I was wondering, like, would you be opposed to something like the Church of the Uncontrolling God? Like, is that something that you're...
1: No, I've got no problem with that possibility. I'm not organizing something like that, but I could see it become a reality, actually. What I want to do is help people. And these ideas have helped me a ton. They've helped a lot of other people. And like you said, they really are growing. This really is a, a way of looking at God that appeals to a growing number of people. I don't know what that's going to look like you know, down the road institutionally, if it's a church or whatever it is. Uh, again, I'm not trying to actively put something like that together. But there have actually been many people who have asked me to do something like that. So there's an, there are people interested in that. But let me answer your question maybe a little more theoretically. I believe that the uncontrolling love vision better describes God than others I know. And I believe I want to be like God, I want to imitate God. And therefore, I want to present this way of being, this way of thinking, this theology, this model of God, in such a way that is inviting without being coercive, <laughs> that lays itself before people and says, look, you you decide. Use the best of your abilities. Does this make sense to you? I, I want the uncontrolling love evangelism strategy to be uncontrolling, we might say. <laughs> Because I think, ultimately, that's not only the way God would act, but that is the most persuasive way to present the good news
0: of God's love. Well, I, I think that's a great answer. And, like I said, in line with this uncontrolling love of God views, to say here. and It's kind of actually in, in line with what, what uh, the followers of Jesus says. of, Come and see. you know, Try it out. Play with it in your mind. Live your life as though it's true. And then see what comes of it.
1: (laughs) Well, that's actually, I think, one of the very attractive elements of this, Corey, is that so much of it already aligns with the way most of us live our lives. Most of us live our lives as if we think we have real freedom and real choice. Most of us think our lives really make some kind of difference. Most of us know we ought to be loving, that we ought to try to make the world a better place and improve our lives. All these things are like deep intuitions that we already have and I'm presenting a theology that fits those intuitions, I think, better than
0: at least a lot of other theologies. I really want to extend a very big thank you, and thank you for indulging me. I'm sure a lot of other podcast people you're going to be with are going to be a little more concise on things, but I thought, I have Thomas Award here. I just read this book, and I wrote a ton of questions down. And I'm going to ask them all. <laughs>
1: I'm glad you did. I I mean, you had really good questions. Uh, As you know, I'm on a lot of podcasts, but you ask questions that other people have never asked. And that's fun for me because sometimes when I do podcasts, I get the kind of questions that I normally get. And part of what my adventure or my, um, my response is to try to come up with a different way of saying the same things I've been saying. But in your case, you had lots of questions that I It made me really articulate new ways of thinking. So thank you for that.
0: Oh, good. That was kind of my goal. How is the best way to purchase this book, through Amazon or through your website, or what's the best way?
1: Yeah, the best way to get this new book, Questions and Answers for God Can't, is probably through Amazon. It's available on print and ebook, and there's even an audio book for it. You know, most people, if, if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't read the previous book, God Can't, it probably makes most sense to start with that, but you wouldn't have to because I give an overview of the arguments in this book. I would also suggest people who are interested in this particular vision to check out a website for the Center for Open and Relational Theology. I'm the director of that. I also run a a program for doctoral students in open and relational theology. But if you go to the Center for Open and Relational Theology website, you can find lots of resources on open and relational thinking from more conservative and more progressive people that affirm this overall vision that God is open and relational.